This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. I guess I spoke too soon. Last week, you may remember, I invoked a theme of help is on the way as we neared the end of this horrible year of 2020. I pointed out that lawmakers in both Washington and Lansing had finally passed separate COVID-19 relief packages. These measures were designed to help unemployed workers and shuttered businesses impacted by government-imposed shutdowns designed to combat the spread of the coronavirus. Well... Leaving aside what's going on in the nation's capital, if we look just at what happened in the state capital this week, it appears the wheels are off the buggy again. I pointed out last week that the legislature had just sent to the governor a $467 million supplemental appropriation with overwhelming bipartisan support primarily to shore up the state's unemployment insurance fund without forcing already damaged businesses to have to pay an extra fee to prop it up. It looked like a done deal. It wasn't. Governor Gretchen Whitmer just vetoed a major part of it. $220 million that was to be allocated to the unemployment insurance fund I just mentioned. I'll get to the governor's reason for doing that in a moment and the Republican legislative leader's reaction to what she did as well. But let's Cut to what the resolution, if there is one, to this latest dilemma might be. I'd say it all depends on, first, whether more anti-coronavirus stimulus money is going to be coming to Michigan from the federal government in Washington. Secondly, whether that happens depends in part on which party prevails in the two special elections in Georgia on January 5th and therefore controls the U.S. Senate. Third, if Democrats do not win in Georgia on January 5th, whether the incoming Biden administration is able to extract more money from Congress to fight COVID in the states, and if he needs to, get Republicans to support him. And lastly, whether, short of that, majority Republicans in the Michigan legislature want to try a veto override since the vast majority of legislative Democrats voted for an appropriation their governor just vetoed. Even if legislative Democrats decide they have to support their governor's veto action, even if they do not like it, Republicans would get them on record once again punishing Michigan businesses, large and small, that have been so badly hurt by Whitmer's action shutting down the state's economy. Now, To get back to what actually happened this week, what arrived in the governor's office is a bill with $467 million for small business aid, vaccine distribution, COVID-19 testing expansion, unemployment benefits, health care hirings, and more wound up as only $106 million of relief and a statement from Governor Gretchen Whitmer urging the legislature to take, quote, further action to make this permanent, unquote. Whitmer approved 
$55 million for aid and grants of up to $20,000 for small businesses affected by the pandemic, $3.5 million for up to $40,000 grants to live music and entertainment venues, and $45 million for direct payments to residents who have been laid off or furloughed in COVID-19's wake. However, she also line item vetoed the $220 million to be allocated to Michigan's Unemployment Compensation Fund to pay for the COVID-19 unemployment benefit expansions through the end of March, three months away, 2021. And here's what Whitmer said in a letter this week to the legislature, quote, while this bill delivers on some of those promises, it includes a number of items that strayed from that principle. The legislature decided at the 11th hour to scrap our collaborative process and included a number of projects that we do not have the revenue for at this time, along with favors for special interests, unquote. In total, the governor disapproved 11 items of a particular bill, Senate Bill 748, sponsored by Senate Appropriations Committee Chair Jim Stamas, a Republican of Midland. The bill was last passed 35 to 2 in the Senate and 97 to 5 in the House. House Speaker Lee Chatfield, a Republican of Levering in the northern Lower Peninsula, said he was, quote, truly confused by the governor's vetoes, unquote, after the press conference. Quote, and this is Chatfield, she vetoed $220 million in unemployment support and eliminated the extension of benefits. Literally, the governor shuts them down, then shuts off the aid. Working families are struggling. Small businesses are dying. I'm blown away. Frustrating. For her part, Whitmer said, quote, while general fund dollars should be used for funding vaccines and personal protective equipment, they should not be used to give tax breaks to big businesses, unquote. And she continued, and I quote, the extension of benefits to hardworking Michiganders should not be used as any sort of a bargaining chip or tied to other priorities that the legislature might have outside of protecting public health and our economy. Now, after the announcement, the Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky of Jackson County, tweeted his disapproval explaining that, and I'm quoting here again, at a time when Michiganders need it most, Governor Whitmer vetoed hundreds of millions of dollars in unemployment benefits, Unemployment cannot be extended without these funds. We are dismayed by our decision to leave families without the assistance they desperately need. But the sponsor of the unemployment extension, who was State Senator Curtis Hertel Jr., a Democrat of East Lansing, his words were different, and he said this, quote, the legislature's insistence on linking the extension of the unemployment money is akin to lawmakers being willing to hold unemployment benefits for people hostage if they don't get a corporate tax break, unquote. Republicans said the language allowing for federal funding for the extension would not take effect until a future budget bill is approved. But Amber McCann, who was a spokeswoman for Senate Majority Leader Shirky, said this, and I quote, The legislation does allow 
for expenditure of federal funds. However, I doubt the people, depending on these benefits, will find comfort in Governor Whitmer's willingness to defer and wait on the federal government to help support Michigan workers, unquote. Now, both Shirky and the incoming speaker in the House, Jason Wentworth, who is a Republican from Farwell, criticized the governor's veto. I already quoted Shirky, but Wentworth called the veto, quote, incredible and shocking mistake. She either doesn't understand the legislation in front of her or her actions today are just as cruel and tone deaf as so many others have been during this pandemic, concluded Wentworth. But he added, just days after Christmas and two days before many extended benefits expire, the governor has ended unemployment support for far too many working families. She's made an incredible and shocking mistake, and the people of Michigan deserve an explanation now. Once again, the governor has put politics before people, said Wentworth. You know, I could go on. There's more to this, and there's a good comment from Tom Albert, the incoming chair of the House Appropriations Committee, in which he said the governor's veto essentially eliminates a six-week extension of benefit from 20 to 26 weeks that otherwise was set for January. So, folks, we can talk about this some more, but uh, not a pretty picture. We don't know how this is going to wind up being resolved, but it's got to be if Michigan businesses and citizens are going to get any more relief from the coronavirus. Stay tuned because we've got some interesting guests coming up. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we've got another chapter in the fascinating saga of a college student who we hope can give you a good picture of what college students have had to go through in this terrible year of 2020. Uh, And she actually has had to deal with parts of two academic years, the end of the last academic year in June and the start of this new one. And her name is Manar Talib, and she is from Dearborn. Manar Talib, thanks for your return. Uh, Thanks for having me again. (laughs) Now, Manar, as I remember, aren't you a graduate of, what is it, uh, Dearborn Fordson High School, right? Yep. Home of the Tractors, which has got to be the most unique uh, mascot I've heard. It it certainly would solve many uh, schools' problems with uh, having Native American names. I mean, they could just call themselves Tractors, and that would take care of it, wouldn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, Manar, you were a freshman at Princeton University in New Jersey, maybe the first student from your school to go there. I'm not even sure you can tell us. And all of a sudden in March, uh, COVID-19 hit. And tell us what happened then. Well, we were actually getting, uh, that was midterms week with all of that uncertainty about what was happening. If it was just going to be a long spring break or maybe they would send us home for the next semester. And all of this news from other schools were rolling in about they were canceling the semester. They were just doing a long spring break. So we were all, like, studying for finals, but just not knowing what was going to happen in a few weeks. So it was super stressful, and no one could focus. We were all kind of just talking about it. 
and um, what's it called? And then it was like, I don't, it was so late in the week that they made the announcement that we aren't are not coming back after the break after all. And like, I especially, I was planning to go um, to my brother's house for spring break in Virginia, but then I had to take all my stuff home. So I, think, like, I was on the hold with Delta for like an hour trying to get my like refund back. And I had to call my parents telling them they had to make the road trip down from Dearborn to come get me. That's like nine hours. And so it was, def- it was just like chaos, essentially. And luckily, I was very fortunate that um, most of my professors postponed my midterm until after the break because I definitely would not have done well because it was just so much going on. <laughs> and so um, Princeton w- was for like they were nice enough to give us that w- a whole week after the end of that um, school week which was supposed to be spring break to pack up and leave. Whereas some places like Harvard were just kind of like kicked them out like really abruptly. So we had time and they provided us with a lot of packing supplies. Like they were really supportive and they gave us money for storage because they knew how abrupt the like leaving was and people had to store like mini fridges or futons, stuff like that. So they gave us a certain amount of money to do that. And so I was just packing up my room. The, the canvas was kind of chaos and everyone was kind of like huddling <laughs> together especially seniors who didn't know if they were going to finish off their college experience at home. So it was definitely like a lot of like sadness and, you know, being like, we're going to miss everybody. And it was just, it was a crazy time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, at least you didn't have to drive quite so far because you were planning to go to your brothers in Virginia. So what, you went down there with your family? Yeah, I was at the last leg of the trip. So they drove nine hours together. My Two sisters, my mom and dad, they drove nine hours down to get me, and then I finished off the last five hours to Virginia. Wow. And so they were already, like, <laughs> sick of the road trip, and I was just arriving, and I'm like, this wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you got to Virginia, how long did you stay? Um, my dad had initially planned us to stay for a couple weeks, but we actually ended up staying close to two months. And my <laughs> sisters were really mad about that because <laughs> they thought my dad had tricked them. But the the thing was, was that all of that news from Michigan was pouring in and how bad it had gotten. And my dad was like, that's probably not a good idea to go back there right now, especially since we have somewhere to live and we can just like settle in here with my brother. We don't have to leave anytime soon. So we ended up staying there quite a while, but I actually enjoyed it. I mean, I did have all my stuff, so I didn't have the same concerns my sisters did. But it was Virginia was really beautiful at that time. My brother had just gotten a new house with a really nice big backyard with, like, birds chirping, and there was, like, water nearby. It was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> An unexpected fringe benefit. Um, any, mm-hmm. Anyway, um, you had to do some online work, didn't you? I mean, still with the college. I mean, weren't you working uh, from home uh, down there at your brother's in Virginia during those two months? Oh, yeah. And I, I'm a lot of students at Princeton could tell you, like, we were all kind of, like, commiserating about it. Like, my focus was gone. I had no motivation to really keep up with my studies because it felt like I was, like, I wasn't in a school mindset anymore. I don't know, a Princeton with all the students around you is like really encouraging place to be focused and be really driven. But when I was at home, my brain was in a different like setting because I was with my family. It felt more like a summer vacation. So at that point, I was kind of just trying to get assignments turned in, like doing the bare minimum. I really couldn't focus. And, you know, it was really scary with all the COVID stuff going on. And so I just did not have a good spring semester. And Princeton was understanding of that. They let us 
elect pass fail for all of our classes, like, well, we had the option to, and it wouldn't be factored into the four that you have during your Princeton career that you're able to pass fail a class that's not in your major. But yeah, they were they were pretty reasonable, and some of my classes even cut down the coursework or changed it to kind of accommodate this like weird, un, uh, like unpredictable time. So, were you in touch with other students uh, during this time while you were in Virginia? Did you get a sense that they kind of had the same mindset as you? They were just kind of rocked back on their heels. They had a hard time focusing on their college curriculum online uh, because they've been taken off campus unexpectedly. I mean, what what did you hear from other students? Oh, yeah, like just that. I, I had a couple close friends that I was talking to daily, but then I also was a part of a few clubs, like the Princeton Marching, Marching Band, and we kept up our social events every Tuesday just to provide structure for people or a place to come, like, you know, see other students. And so when we'd have those, we'd have, like, 20 people on the Zoom call, and we'd all just be talking about how tough it is. One, with the abrupt change in the course, like, because there were complaints that a lot of teachers, I mean, students hadn't gotten the hang of online learning yet, but it was especially hard that teachers hadn't got the hang yet, and people felt like they had more work now that it was online. So there was definitely a lot of, like, growing pains of going to Zoom for that first semester. I feel like this semester things, like, looked up a little bit, but that first semester was definitely a lot of, like, um, I don't know. It was it was just really hard to learn online. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after the two months of Virginia, then what? Did you go back to Michigan? Yeah, we, we, made, the, we made the trip back up to Michigan again. I actually had to leave a lot of my... Um, clothes because I basically brought my home, whole dorm room to my brother's house and so I had to leave like half of that behind because we, we had to pack like food and stuff. My dad was really like careful about COVID so he was like bulk buying groceries so we didn't have to go out a lot and so like half of our um, like storage space in the car was food so I had to leave stuff behind and so we went back up to Michigan and we spent the rest of the summer here obviously and um and we were basically like, just, I was reading books. I was, we occasionally went to the lake, social distance, of course, like Cass Lake or um, Pontiac. And I actually liked going up to Huron, even though it's a bit of a drive. It's really beautiful. But yeah, yeah we went up to that back to Michigan. Well, listen, uh, we're going to talk some more about this because you've got some other exciting stuff I think you did. We'll be back in a minute with Manar Talib of Dearborn. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Manar Talib, who is a sophomore at Princeton University in New Jersey, although she hasn't spent nearly as much time there as she would have liked to because of the coronavirus. And she has just described to us what she went through and what a lot of her fellow students went through this past spring and summer after they were basically told to go home by Princeton and not come back until further notice, which we'll get to in a minute. But Manar Talib, uh, you're in Dearborn in the summer and you're reading and you occasionally get to a lake and everything, but somehow you must have made arrangements for doing something this fall that probably you wouldn't have thought about uh, unless 
this had all happened and this was kind of thrust upon you as an opportunity. Is that correct? Tell us what it was. Last fall semester in Belfast, Northern Ireland with another friend from Princeton. And that was definitely something I never thought I'd be able to do. But um, so when Princeton made the, I was initially with a Princeton's original plan for the school year. I was supposed to come back with other sophomores and seniors in the spring. So my fall was still supposed to be spent at home, but Princeton created another offer for like people who did not want to study at home. They created an off-campus budget that budgeted for like living living expenses, like $5,000 in food, like $2,000. And so since I'm a full A student, that money would be complete, like I would be able to get that money to find a place. And so my friend was in a similar position as well. So we were talking about rooming together. And we were like, kind of, we could go to Morocco or we could go to all these places. Like, we were kind of like bouncing ideas off each other. We could go. And my parents were on board. I did need to do a, like a PowerPoint to convince them, but they, they came <laughs> around. And so we ended up in Belfast because we were like, we really want to see Ireland, and Belfast is the cheapest city to go to. <laughs> like, it's a big city, but it's also inexpensive. And so we, I, I booked my plane ticket. I, stopped in London to get my friend. That's where she lives. And then we went over to Belfast for four months. So, yeah, it was definitely a crazy ride. Wow. Well, you get to Belfast, and uh, what was your experience like there? Well, I was still in a Princeton semester, so obviously there was not a ton of free time for me to be exploring. But we did get out to Victoria Square, which is like a famous shopping place. And the city center of Belfast is so cool. Like, it's all cobblestone streets in the middle and, like, this great architecture. (laughs) So I would be going to the city every weekend to kind of, like, I don't know, either go shopping or just, like, walk around. I, um, the restraint, they were doing a little bit better with COVID, so there weren't any, um, super harsh lockdowns while I was there. But towards the end, there was, like, a six-week one where I didn't really go out. But things were definitely open in the streets. There was, like, live music. There were a lot of bands playing in the center. And so it was just really nice. I enjoyed I enjoyed my time there, but I was a little bit disappointed that I was able to, like, go further than Belfast because Northern Ireland is known for a lot of, like, nature things, like, really cool. Um, you said about the giant causeway, right? So there's just, just a lot of cool stuff to see, and I didn't really get to see it. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, In case a lot of our listeners aren't aware, Northern Ireland is six counties in the north of Ireland Island, uh, which is affiliated with the Great British Empire, uh, Great Britain. It's part of Great Britain. But the rest of Ireland, 26 other counties, are the Republican of Ireland. That is um, Dublin is the capital. And apparently, I mean, you were unable to get to uh, the Republic of Ireland at all, right? Uh, you, you were not only just within the six counties of Northern Ireland, you were confined pretty much basically to Belfast City itself while you were there, right? Yeah, me and my friend had planned because the tra- train ride to Dublin is only seven pounds, which is about $10. And we were planning to make like a weekend trip during the Thanksgiving break. But then that ended up being during the lockdown, so we really couldn't go anywhere because we're like, Dublin will probably, if if, um, Northern Ireland is having issues, Dublin, like the Republic of Ireland will probably be having the same kind of lockdown. And so we just couldn't make the trip down there. Were you able to focus a little bit more on academics while you were there, better than you were able to, let's say, down in Virginia in the spring? 
Oh, yeah, because it was me and my roommate just in that apartment, and we were both taking Princeton classes, and so I definitely was able to carve out my own schedule. And the time difference helped, too, because it was five hours ahead, and so I was having all of my classes in the late afternoon, and so I could do homework in the morning and at night. It was really nice, <laughs> but I was able to focus on Princeton stuff. Again, I got a lot of Zoom fatigue. I don't know, even though the semester was better in terms of how courses were structured and things like that, there definitely are limitations to how long you can stare at a computer screen. I was like, at the end of weeks, my eyesight would be like getting blurry on the screen because <laughs> I've been like spending 16-hour days looking at this, doing assignments and going to classes. So online learning got better, but it definitely isn't ideal or even sustainable, really. For like, I don't know, I didn't even wear glasses, but my eyesight was starting to dip there. Oh, boy. Wow. Well, then you got back to Dearborn in time for Christmas? Yep. I got back um, December 18th and just in time, too, because they had started seeing a new strain of corona in um, the, the U.K. And people were starting to ban, like, travelers from the U.K. To, in different countries. So, And it was funny, too, because I had initially planned on coming back on the 23rd, so, like, right before Christmas. But I was, like, missing my family, so I just changed it to a week before. So I ended up actually getting back here on the 18th of December. And it was, like, 16 hours of travel. It was definitely a lot. I do not want to step in an airport anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> if not, it's just for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> when is Princeton going to let you come back? Um, they let us have different sign-up times. So we're allotted only an hour for move-in, and we can only bring one other person. So I signed up for the 23rd of January, a Saturday. And so my mom and dad are going to drive me down to Princeton, and we're going to, um, what's called, on, in the morning of that Saturday, the 23rd, I'm going to be moving back in. But it's like a bunch of scattered dates. The students are going to be moving in, like, anywhere from the 16th of January all the way to the 24th. So they're trying not to have any, like, concentrated amount of students at one time. Is the university going to make you quarantine when you get back? Yeah, they, the reason, so all students who are moving back to campus have to be there by the 24th to allow for a week-long quarantine before classes start. So that's like a self-isolation. You have to be staying in your room for those seven days and you have meals delivered to your door and all of that. So they, they kind of want to keep, and you have to be taking so when you get there, you have to self-isolate, but they're also going to be giving you a COVID test. And, you you know, if you test negative, obviously, um, once that isolation period of seven days is up, you're free to walk around. But if you do test positive, then that's going to be a whole different can of worms. <laughs> and they'll probably keep you isolated for longer and make sure that you're not in contact with other students. Are you in a single? I mean, would you be quarantined in a single? What if you had a roommate? Um, the way they set it up this year was that they were trying to um, honor the rooms we drew into, we, the rooms we chose um, in the spring, but um, what's called. And so I'm going to be in that original quad I drew for, but just with one other student, uh, another girl I was going to live with anyway. And so Princeton says you might not have, like, single rooms, like, because obviously Princeton has quads and doubles and, you know, seven suite rooms, but you have your single sleeping space. So I will have my own bedroom and then no one else, um, like, that's supposed to be mine alone. I won't be sharing it with anybody else. And so does the other student. And then we have the common room between us. 
we're not we're not expected to socially distance from our like roommates if we do have them, but we are expected to. You know, you're only supposed to have like one to two people coming to visit you, and that's supposed to be social distance. But this is obviously after the quarantine period, so yeah, that's kind of how they're they're dealing with it. So, are you considered halfway through your sophomore year at this point? I mean, all you have to do if nothing bad happens is be on campus uh, from the end of January until, you know, uh, June or the end of May? Yeah, yeah. So that that stands now. Campus life is not going to be like it was before in in most capacities. I'm thinking some of the centers might still be open, like Frist, and I'm hoping to get my job back at the welcome desk. Yeah, (laughs) it might be. Yeah, it might be your junior year before things are even approaching being normal at Princeton Mm -hmm. again. Well, listen, we are out of time, believe it or not. We could keep going, but I want to thank you, Manar Talib of Dearborn, of student sophomore at Princeton University in New Jersey, and what she has gone through because of COVID-19. Thanks for your participation, Manar. Great story. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. Our next guest is on the line with me right now, and he is Mark Tisdell, who is the representative-elect in the 45th State House of Representatives District in eastern Oakland County. And I think the 45th includes the city of Rochester, where I think he's been president of the city council and also Rochester Hills and part of Oakland Township. Is that correct, Mark Tisdale? Yes, it is, Bill. It's Rochester, Rochester Hills, a little bit of Oakland Township. I was a council member for eight years in Rochester Hills and and council president there for four. Oh, okay. The Hills, not Rochester City. Okay. Now, Correct. I think you were uh, a college graduate at Drake University, and I think you majored in journalism. I got to tell you, that's pretty rare for somebody majoring in journalism or a reporter to actually get elected to something. You know, journalists <laughs> well, are. I try are, to keep that a secret. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, journalists <laughs> but, uh, are not too good no, at getting you know, elected. The, yeah. As you know, breaking into the journalism business, um, uh, it, it can, can be a very low paying. Uh, <laughs> Uh, effort uh, when you're right out of college. And um, I was working for an advertising agency back here in uh, in metropolitan Detroit and uh, had the, the opportunity to meet the uh, the president and CEO of the medical protective company um, over a, uh, at, a, at a wedding in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And a couple of weeks later, got an opportunity to interview. And that's how I got into the medical malpractice insurance business. Wow. That is really a jump from what you started out doing, right? And 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 paid better. <laughs> I bet it did. I bet it did. Well, look, uh, tell us more about the Mark Tisdale story. I mean, you know, your experience on the Rochester Hill City Council, how, why you happened to run for that. Uh, where did you go to high school? Uh, was it Rochester Hills? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I was I was born and raised in Port Huron, Michigan. My dad was the first board-certified OBGYN in St. Clair County back in 1950, and and we we lived right on the lake, and we it was a it was an absolutely wonderful experience, an absolute 
an, an absolute, you know, uh, water-filled playground in, in, the, in the summer. Um, but I, you know, we moved, my, my wife and I moved back here um, in, in uh, October of 1989. So we're 31 year residents of, of Rochester Hills. I decided to run. I was disappointed in, in how one of the local uh, elections uh, uh, was, was held and the, the, the messages that were being sent out. And I decided to get into politics. And, and I, I tell people now, um, you know, I'm far less cynical today than I was nine years ago as a result of my uh, of my experience with Rod, with the Rochester Hill City Council. The city hall employees are good, hardworking, very decent people. We're very fortunate here in Rochester, Rochester Hills area. Great residents that are educated, take care of their properties, take care of their children, pay their bills. Um, and it was just a it was just a really wonderful experience. And uh, the gentleman that holds the seat now for one more day, Representative Mike Weber, and I served together on the Rochester Hills City Council. I was term limited out in 19. He was term limited out here in 2020. So the timing was just perfect. Wow. Well, our listeners must be heartened to hear that somebody who has been in politics for as long as you have is less cynical now about <laughs> politics and government than a decade ago. That's a good thing, I think. So uh, going forward, less, how less did... Cynical, less cynical or more gullible, maybe, <laughs> one, or, one or the other. <laughs> well, what about uh, your candidacy for the State House of Representatives? Why did you decide to do that? How did it happen? Well, it's just like I said, I was I was term limited out of the city council in 2019. I turned 65 this year. Mike Weber was term limited out in 2020. And we kind of looked at the list of usual suspects that that might run to replace him. And I I just felt I was the better candidate, the better person to represent this area than those people. And Mike and I actually started talking about it back in May or June of 2018 and our first objective was to see if we could we could get this done without a primary, which 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 we did, and that was a huge advantage. And then just allowed me to focus on the general. And as you know, the the governor and both U.S. senators and uh, both both uh, congresswomen uh, and and uh, you know our, our our state senator and some other House reps came in and and campaigned. For my opponent, and we were able to we were able to, to to beat all of them. I guess their combined efforts, and so really proud of that, and and just honored to, you know to serve the people. And I just thought it was a great way of returning the investment that they have made in me over the last eight years uh, serving Rochester Hills, which represents probably about eighty percent of the of this district. Yeah, well, I think the Democrats uh, probably were really chagrined. I know they were um, losing uh, this race to you on November 3rd by about, I think it was four points. I mean, this is an area, maybe you could talk about this a little bit, that seems to be changing. I mean, uh, I think the Democrats or a couple of Democratic candidates carried uh, Rochester Hills and, and, in essence, your district the 45th uh, in 2018. And I think the Democrats thought the tide is turning. This used to be a Republican area. 
It isn't anymore. Uh, we think uh, th- we got this one in the bag. And they had a pretty good candidate uh, running uh, against you, but you prevailed. Uh, what is happening? Where is Rochester Hills and Rochester going? Are, are they getting more and more purple, more and more blue, or can it switch back and forth from election to election? Well, you're right, Bill. Historically, this has been a, 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 a reliable Republican seat. I don't know that uh, that, a, that a Democrat has ever has ever held this seat. But if you go back to 2018, President Trump carried carried that election. Governor Whitmer carried Rochester Hills uh, by a, um, uh, in 2018. Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Congresswoman Slotkin, carried Rochester Hills. Um, in 2018, uh, Senator McMorrow did not, uh, but but had enough um, in the other locations, Troy, you know, Royal Oak area to, to win that election. So so it, if anything, maybe it's been swinging more specifically to who the people believe is the best candidate and not maybe so much along party party line. Um and I've been a relatively public figure in this community for a long time. I've been at, at uh, St. Andrew Catholic Church for 27 years. For a long time, St. Andrew was the largest Catholic parish in the state. I've been doing benefit, uh, you know, fundraising concerts out here for, for 26 years for different organizations. And have just, you know, made an impact and it's garnered name recognition Doing those kinds of activities along with uh, with service on the city council, and, and I, you know, it, it, I had a significant head start on name recognition over my over my uh, opponent, and I think that made a huge difference. Let me ask you about what just happened this week, just very quickly. Governor Whitmer, you may have seen, vetoed uh, an appropriation bill that would have. Uh, given uh, several hundred million dollars to the unemployment compensation fund, and the Republicans in the legislature believe that that basically stops that money from helping uh, the unemployment insurance fund and laid-off workers. Uh, Governor Whitmer apparently feels no, it won't, uh, that somehow uh, she's going to be able to get the money from somewhere. Have you followed that? What, what's your reaction? Well, it was the president's. Not only not only did she veto that, I think it was about two hundred twenty-five million. But there's a the Republican side of the aisle felt that that was tie barred or directly connected to an extension of the unemployment benefits from twenty to twenty-six weeks. So I'm not sure. Obviously, there's some some misunderstanding or 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 disparate understanding of how those two issues that funding and the extension are connected um i've had the opportunity to speak to some restaurateurs in our area and i think what most people don't recognize is for many restaurants the last three weeks of december can be as much as a third of their total year's revenues and that translates into a third of their of particularly of their weight staff revenues as well and because of the holiday spirit Typical gratuity can go as high as, as 24, 25%. Yeah. So this recent cutoff represents a huge, uh, or, or shutdown of restaurants represents a yeah. huge hole. 
Well, listen, I, I want to keep talking about this, but we're out of time right now. We'd love to get you back later when your term starts. But thank you, Mark Tisdale, representative-elect from the 45th House District in Rochester Hills. Thank you, Mark Tisdale. We'll be back next week with still more.